Hello, everybody. Hope you're having a good weekend. Uh, on weekends, we tend to do long-form podcasts of my appearances and other uh, episodes and podcasts, so people who follow my work can have one place to find my stuff and also maybe discover other podcasts, which is very much the mission of the mixtape. And probably the single biggest blog post I've ever done this year is the end of localhost, uh, which is the recap of where I think the cloud development environments are going and why I suddenly turned from cynic to believer. Um, I've actually <laughs> traveled and done talks on this, but um, I really enjoyed this interview on the InfoQ podcast. It's not only my first on the InfoQ podcast, which I think is a pretty high profile um, tech media company, but also uh, the interviewer, Daniel, was just extremely complimentary and well-researched. Uh, he, he really delved, dived into a lot of the, the points that I made. Um, we didn't even get through most of the, the article. So um, that's fun to read if you want to read up on, on it and you haven't seen it. Um, but here's the interview. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. I'm Daniel Bryant, Head of Developer Relations at Ambassador Labs and News Manager here at InfoQ. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sean Wang, Head of Developer Experience at Airbyte. Sean also goes by the name Swix on the internet, that's S-W-Y-X, and I've been following his work for a number of years. His recent blog post entitled The End of Localhost explored local development environments and the potential move to remote development, and this caused quite a stir in the developer communities. I wanted to chat to him more and explore the topic in more depth. In this episode of the podcast, we cover everything from the topic of local development environments to the exploration of hybrid and remote development, and of course, the future of IDEs. Let's get started. Hello, Swix, and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. Could you briefly introduce yourself for the listeners, please? My name is Sean. I also go by Swix. I've done a number of roles since joining tech. I used to be a trader here in London, actually, where I'm recording right now. But I pivoted to tech not too long ago, and I've worked at Netlify, Two Sigma, AWS, Temporal, and I'm currently at Airbytes, basically just working on developer relations and developer experience, always working for a developer tools company. And on the side, I do some blogging, which is why I'm here. Perfect. Yeah, that's how I've been following you for many years, your blogs. And I think you and I have led similar paths. I mean, I haven't done the trading, but we've led similar paths in the software space. We could talk for hours on developer experience, developer relations, many things, right? But in particular, I was really interested by your recent blog post, The End of Localhost. And that's what we're going to sort of frame the podcast around today. I think so many great insights for folks from all different angles, whether you're a developer, an operator, whatever your persona is. So for folks who haven't read the blog post, could you summarize perhaps the core premise of why you put together, what was it called, the end of localhost, all the clouds are staging environment and all the laptops merely clients? Great title. <laughs> yeah, I have a little bit of pretend Shakespeare literature bent around me. So if I can see a reference, an opportunity to squeeze it in, I will. So the premise of this, let me just start at the inciting incidents. I have been basically skeptic of the cloud development environments for the past few years. I've seen the rise of Code Sandbox. I've seen the rise of GitHub Code Spaces. And I'm like, yeah, you know, good for small things like testing stuff out, but you'll never do anything serious in these. And then I started to see people like Yemo Rausch from Vercel saying he no longer codes on a laptop. He just has an iPad. And that starts to really shift my gears. But the inciting incident for this particular blog post where I was really starting to take it seriously was Sam Lambert, who's the CEO of PlanetScale, saying that PlanetScale doesn't believe in localhost on a podcast. I don't remember which podcast it was. I think it was Cloudcast or something like that. I put a link in the blog post. But for a DevTools company to come out and say, 
that they don't care about local hosts is a bolder statement than I think most people realize. Because for most people, a proper development experience must include a local clone of whatever the cloud environment is doing so you can run things locally without network access. And this is exactly what I worked on at Netlify. I worked on Netlify Dev, which is kind of a local sort of proxy that compiles Netlify's routing services down to the CLI. At AWS, we spend a lot of time building the AWS Amplify CLI, which does clone a few things. It's not a complete clone because it's very hard to clone AWS down to the local environment. And that's where you start to see the, the issues. And, you know, mostly like what is Docker Compose, but a way to locally clone your production cluster onto your local desktop. And you can see it's not a very high fidelity local clone, particularly as you start to use more and more cloud services. And so the assertion is that this is a temporary phenomenon. This is not the end state of things. Because all that we have to do and where every single cloud environment is trending is that you should have branches. It should be cheap to spin them up and spin them down. You should not treat them like pets. You should treat them like cattle, which means if you want to spin something up for a few seconds, go ahead. It doesn't cost much. You can do it without a second thought. And so why are you wasting any time maintaining the differences or debugging differences between dev and prod when you can just have multiple prods and just swap between them? So that is the premise of the debate. That was a personal journey that took a few years. And I sort of wrote it up in a tweet. And I was like, you know, I want to get people's opinions. I know this will be slightly controversial, but I was very taken aback by how strong the opinion was. Obviously, devs have very strong feelings about their development environment. And, you know, obviously it's the main tool of our trade. So, of course, but it really split ways in terms of whether or not people use significant cloud services or they don't use significant cloud services so they don't see much benefit and whether or not people have experienced the pain with maintaining different environments. So one of my favorite lines, I really love this phrase from Bob Metcalf was quoted by Mark Andreessen, you know, the browser reduced operating systems to a poorly debugged set of drivers. Like the browser is essentially a better operating system for apps than the operating system itself because it's a much easier application delivery mechanism. So if the cloud is doing the same thing to dev environments, then the cloud will reduce the dev machine to a poorly maintained set of environment mocks. Like we'll never have full fidelity to the production environment just because we don't, like, we don't have secrets or we don't have the right networking setup, or we don't have the right data in place. And so any time spent debugging dev and prod differences is time wasted as long as you can get cloud good enough. So let's go get cloud good enough. Perfect. That's a great intro. And there's so much to break down. I encourage listeners to you know read the full blog post and I'll definitely link it in the show notes because it's a fantastic read. Straight up, I've read it about 10 times now and I take away different things every time. It is a monster blog post. It's fantastic. But a few things caught my eye and I'd love to dive into them for the listeners in a bit more detail. You touched on a little bit there, but the ultimate developer wish list stood out for me is in like, what do we want as developers? I think back to my days, you know, started my days, mainly Java development, did a bit of JavaScript, did a bit of Go now. And three things really stood out to me. And I'd like to work through them and get your opinion on them now. The first one, and you hinted at that with the iPad development, but you said your personal dev environment travels with you no matter which device you use. And obviously there's GitHub code spaces, Gitpod, Docker dev environments, there's a bunch of tools out there. I'd love for you to yeah break that down for us. You know, what's the benefit of that dev environment traveling with you, the, the stop start maybe of the dev environments? I'd love to hear your thoughts of why that was a wish list item. I'll preface this with why I like to start with the wish list, why I started this blog post with a wish list. So some people might go directly into what remote dev environment is, but I think I like to start from the problems rather than the solutions because solutions will come and go, but the problems remain. And as long as we can set a long-term goal of what we actually want in an ideal world, we can kind of work our way backwards to how we get there. And so that's why I started with this wish list. And I think the dev environment traveling with you 
is kind of a luxury, but also it's a productivity thing. Like, you know, all your bash aliases, all your CLIs that you always use. You know, if you use a different version of, I don't know, like <laughs> what is trendy these days, like FZF or all these sort of command line utilities that you know of, but are not fully distributed yet, but you just want to use it everywhere you go with you. Like my favorite is Z, the little command line called Z that remembers every folder you've been in and does a sort of frequency matching so that you can just jump back and forth between folders just by typing a partial match of the folder name. Like all those little utilities that increase your productivity, you want to have them everywhere that you code. And sometimes you don't have access to your machine, whether you're traveling, you're using a coworker's laptop, or you're quote unquote SSHing into a remote environment and you're trying to debug something and you just don't have the utilities that you're used to. So now you spend some time writing lower level scripts that you would have put together in a macro in a previous environment. So it just takes so much time to set up and people have built all sorts of tooling for this. I think Spotify's Backstage maybe comes to mind. Netflix also has a sort of bootstrapping tool that they use internally. All sorts of companies have this company dev environment, but then there's also an element of personalization that makes your dev experience yours rather than the one that's prescribed to you by some company or your employer. And I think that is an ideal that we try to reach we may not ever reach that because it's hard to basically teleport a whole machine regardless of any hardware. But I think we have enough generic tools and interfaces that we could possibly do like 90% of that to work. One device or one tool that has made significant progress that you didn't mention was actually VS Code implemented settings sync. You actually used to be a user land plugin that would post your settings to a gist and then you'd have to download the gist and do all sorts of funky gymnastics. But VS Code just built it in and it just works and it downloads the extensions that you always use so you get your intelligent suggestions and it just works. And I think that is something that is improving developer productivity as they move machines. So I think it's a luxury, maybe on the scale of things, it's not as important as the other stuff, but I just chucked it in there because there's some things that if you pick the right solution, you get a bunch of these for free together. Let's dive into the second item I pulled up. Is this any apps, environmental dependencies, everything from an HTTPS certificate to a sanitized sandbox fork of production databases are immediately available to any teammate ramping up to contribute any feature. No docs, no runbook. And I can totally, you know, having done a bunch of microservice work, empathize with this, right? Not only is like TLS certs an issue, but even other services, databases. This, I think, is a big one, right? I'd like to get your take on this wishlist item. <laughs> So first of all, I appreciate that you call it the TLS cert because I actually debated whether I should say TLS cert or HTTPS cert. And I settled on HTTPS because that's the thing that most people see. But <laughs> it's always confusing to have two names for that process. I'm a guy who, like, I care about docs. I think it's a mark of a good developer to write docs and to write runbooks. At the same time, I know that people ignore them or people like skip steps or they are badly written and you just can't quite follow them. And that's also very frustrating. And ultimately, the best docs is the docs you don't have to read, right? And that is a product level improvement that you kind of have to make there. But I do see that a lot of the cloud providers and cloud setups that are out there are trending towards this place where, again, this is an outcome of treating your environment like cattle, not pets. Like all these should be commoditized things and immediately available. It should not be like one of these four or one of these certs 
per developer or per organization or per team or per feature. You should have multiple of these. You should have 10 of these simultaneously running if you want to. And why not, right? So that's why I said any teammate ramping up to contribute any feature, you should be able to work on multiple features at the same time and not have any conflicts between them and to have a relatively high fidelity fork of whatever you have in production. And something I mentioned about the sanitized fork of the production database also matters a lot. There's just some companies are working on this, which is protecting PII information, right? And I think these are difficult problems, but they're not unsolvable problems. And there are companies working on this. And it's easy to see a future in which some standardized version of this is essentially solved. It will never be solved forever because data is complex and heterogeneous and difficult. But on some level, we can probably have some version of this future where environments are truly disposable, truly ephemeral, truly just high fidelity as possible. And I don't think there's that much of a difference from doing that. Like, I don't think whatever improvements we can make in localhost cannot match that. Like whatever we do in production, being able to fork that is always going to be a superior alternative. I'm trying to express something, but I don't have the words for it. Like something to code against. The word that comes to mind is a substrate, an environment to code against. Like you want to have a high fidelity environment to code against as much as possible to your production rather than making it easy to run locally. And that's, I think, what we achieve with this vision. Yeah, I love it. And it brought back some memories. I remember I did a bunch of Ruby on Rails and we had like some really old services running on on an old version of Ruby. And I had to use RBM locally to manage my machine of different versions of Ruby, different dependencies like gem. The bundles were a nightmare. And then the other day I fired up Gitpod, just a name check Gitbob. And I was working on two branches in two different browser tabs of the same project. Right. And I was like, whoa, that was a little bit of a, you know, I'm sure you can do this with other remote dev experiences, not just Gitpod. But that blew my mind to fiddling around with RBM all my local tools to having two environments in two separate tabs on the same machine i was like that's amazing right (laughs) yeah to me it's just really about all these things that can be commoditized you should never have to worry about it it should just be a part of the workflow as ubiquitous as git you know git is forking code and whatever this cloud thing is is cloud development is 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 just forking your environment and i think that's a very expansive vision and that papers over a lot of infrastructure work that needs to be done but it's going to be done because in terms of vision, that is the best way. The, the alternative is leave things as the status quo and it is not super productive. Maybe one more thing I'll offer, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is I've been talking to the Deno guys, Ryan Dallin and the people working on Deno Deploy, and also the Cloudflare people who are working on Cloudflare workers and workers for platforms. And essentially, there's an intermediate tier that's emerging between client and server, and that is serverless, client server serverless. And the serverless functions are kind of an ephemeral tier of compute that are easily forkable that are trusted but sandboxed in a way that you can run untrusted code on it. It's just like a very interesting environment where you can get very, very close to production level infrastructure in a fork. So I feel like there's a very strong empathy in the serverless movement with this movement, which is it should be able to spin up these environments easily. And obviously the easiest one to spin up is compute. But then now that trend is moving to databases and I think the more and more of the infrastructure primitives should become serverless, air quote serverless, in that way, where it's cheap and easy to spin things up. I remember myself, I played around with AWS Lambda and the SAM environment. I was using local stack to emulate some of the things. And for like some use cases, it worked really well. And for other use cases, to your point, the emulators really showed they were emulators. Yeah, they're always going to trail behind. 
these guys have put a lot of work into it, but it's kind of a losing battle or a Sisyphean battle, as the Greek metaphor I would use, that you're always going to chill behind and maybe you should just stop trying. <laughs> I, know, I think that's, that's great. That's, we can perhaps dive into that a bit more in a minute because, yeah, I totally get it. I totally get it. The final wish list item I wanted to pick up on, because I think it frames the rest of the discussion perfectly, because I think this is like maybe a bit controversial, but I think it's great. You said you can scale up MVP to unicorn in weeks using one of the serverless or new Heroku-like platforms with auth payments, databases, communication handled by world-class SaaS teams. And that's the vision, right? Going from, you know, one person in like their bedroom to like a multi, you know, unicorn, right? Do you really think that's possible? I think that's possible. I think that should be possible. That there's something that we want to get infrastructure to a point of doing. But I respect that not everyone will want this, actually. Right. I think you should have the option to have it. You should have the technologies available to you if you want it. But at the same time, large companies will always want to have their own platform by which you run everything through. Right. So I view the world of SaaS and all these sort of infrastructure as a service companies, you know, I view them as net additions. Like you could roll it yourself. You would take a long while, you'd rediscover all the foot guns that everyone else has discovered ahead of you, and you would take a lot more time, but you would have full control of it. So there is some level at which it makes sense to make that bargain of, I will give over control to someone who knows more than me, I'll pay them money, I'll exchange fixed costs upfront for variable cost that I know is higher in the long run, but total cost of ownership is lower. I'll do all those trade-offs for my size. And until such time as I need to bring it in-house, I will bring it in-house. But I think these are net additions. I think that is a positive. We just have to be very clear about what actual primitives are additive to us and what are just really very thin combinations of other primitives that we should probably just bring in-house anyway because they don't add that much value. It's one of those difficult things to really make a judgment of because as someone who's not a domain expert, it's always very easy to underappreciate like, oh, you're just a cron service. Why do I need you? And then figure out how unreliable cron at scale can be. So I think it does take some experience. I don't necessarily think that this is like the biggest point for me, but I do think that like this is a litmus test of how good cloud services are. And if we're not there yet, maybe we should go build what's missing. And to me, as someone who's into dev tools in the startups, I'm always looking for the negative space where the existing set of solutions are not well addressed yet. Yeah, I love it. I'm the same, like working in the tools space as well. Like that totally makes sense. Looking for the gaps, looking for the things to join it all together. Like, love that. Love that. Let's move on a little bit now because you covered some great points I wanted to look into there. I was really curious to dive into existing solutions already out there. The next bit of the blog, you said, hey, you know, Google, Fangs already do a bunch of this stuff. And you and I were talking off mic, you know, we know not everyone's a Netflix, we know not everyone's a Google, but often they can show us where the future might be, right? Or there's something interesting there. So my general experience when I chat to people, when I chat to a lot of folks in this space, they don't know how other companies develop. But it's not a thing developers talk about. They talk about architecture, but they don't necessarily talk about local dev setup, right? So I'd love for you to give us a bit of insight into what have you seen as you've looked around at dev environments? You know, you looked at Google, you mentioned Slack, you mentioned a bunch of other folks in the blog post. I'd love to get your take on where is the vanguard, if you like? Where are they in terms of local or not local dev experience? Yeah, I want to preface this with, I haven't actually worked at any of these companies that I'm about to mention. The only big co I worked at is Amazon. And Amazon did not have a... We had one, but we didn't really use it internally. <laughs> I think it was, uh, forget the name of it, Cloud9. Oh, yeah, I know it. Yeah, yeah. It got acquired, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we didn't really use it internally for anything uh, development-wise. But anyway, so the list I had, and by the way, this is one part of how I blog, which is I'll tweet out, you know, the rough direction I want it to go. And then if you have enough of a relationship with your readers, they'll contribute examples to you. So I didn't know all this when I started out. But Google, Facebook, Etsy, Tesla, Palantir, Shopify, Slack, and GitHub all chimed in with their versions of whatever the ephemeral workspace or cloud development environment is. And at some point, in their lifespan. And, and some of them have talked about it publicly. Some of them have not. Like Tesla was not public about this, but apparently I got one tweet that said for vehicle OS development, they moved from local to cloud because it was too expensive to run locally. At some point, it makes sense for those people, especially if they have a lot of proprietary infrastructure, if they want to restrict what the developers do, or they want to provide tools that cannot be provided locally. All those things are worthwhile investments for them. And I just think it's really interesting. So I'm very much of the opinion that we should not cargo cult, right? Which is, oh, Netflix did it. Netflix is successful. Therefore, doing cloud development environments makes you successful. That's kind of not the way to think about this because that is the path to madness. But the way I look at technology innovation diffusion is that it usually starts at the big players and then it trickles down. And so what I pay attention to is when people leave, you know, I have a few friends at Facebook, I have a few friends at Shopify. When people leave, what do they miss? <laughs> and so Facebook, the Facebookers talk about Facebook on demand and Facebook local dev doesn't exist. And that is just such a stark contrast that is immediately compelling. But that's one thing. The second thing that you want to look out for is, does it still make sense at the individual level? Like, is this something that you only do because you have a team of, I don't know, 10,000 people? Or does it make sense for three people? Doesn't make sense for one person. And I think this concept of cloud development environments or end of local host, I think it applies for one person as well, because I want to work on multiple things at the same time. So in other words, right now, there's a lot of investment in proprietary tooling at the big codes because they can afford it. Eventually, some of these people will leave. Actually, some of them are. I have a list of them at the end of the post and then work on spreading this technology to everyone else. So that's kind of how innovation works. It starts proprietary and then it gets productized and commoditized. And I think that we're in the middle of seeing this happen. Perfect. perfect. I don't know. Are you a fan of Wardley Maps? I'm just thinking all the things you mentioned there. Yes. I love Simon's work. And you can literally see things going from genesis to product to then commodity. Have you tried to map out at all the dev tooling space? (laughs) Oh, dear. I have one. I actually have a separate post called the four and a half kinds of developer platforms. And my map looks very different from Worldly Mapping. I think Worldly Maps do play a lot of significance in my thinking. The problem is they tend to look like conspiracy theory maps. (laughs) (laughs) With the always sunny in Philadelphia meme. And I'm like, this is going to make people laugh at you rather than come along with you. So I tend to keep my dimensionality simple, two by two matrices or some kind of hero's journey type of storytelling. But yeah, I look at things in terms of money spent the way that industries move together or separately. So what I have is four and a half kinds of platforms would be application platforms, infrastructure platforms, developer platforms, which is the one we're talking about today. And then the fourth one would be data platforms. Oh, interesting. So people working on data engineering. And I feel like web developers historically underestimate the amount of data engineering that is going on. And that has been the biggest blind side for me in just catching up in all of them. And the final half platform is the platform of platforms that eventually emerges in all these companies. So particularly things like logging, you know, you will need to log all the things and feed information from one place to the other, billing, auth and off the singletons in the company that naturally emerge because they need to be the central store of all data, all information that is relevant to them. It's an open question. So I used to work at Temporal. It's an open question whether workflow engines count as a platform of platforms because they are used in both infrastructure and applications. And I think maybe 
maybe that is something that should not be encouraged. Maybe we should have separate engines for those of them because it's very tricky to commingle these resources together. But yeah, I think it's an emerging area of debate for me, but I have mapped it out and that's the TLDR. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's another podcast we can bring you in for, right, is to cover those platforms, because that sounds fascinating. I'll definitely be checking that blog post out later on. So I know we're sort of coming close-ish to time. I want to leave a bit of a gap here. You and I talked before about addressing the feedback you've got from this post, both the good feedback and the negative feedback, right? Because to your point, like earlier, that some folks really do love their local dev environments. You know, they do treat them like pets. And I've been there in the past, right? So I would love to get your take now on the feedback you got when you put the tweets out there, you put the blog out there. Was it predominantly good feedback you got, predominantly bad? I'd love your take on it. I think it's interesting. The thought leader types love it. And then the anonymous types don't. (laughs) If I could sum up the reactions. That's awesome. It does trend to that way. Because I noticed that the people that were positive, you know, Jana Dugan, Eric Bernhardson, Kelsey Hightower, Danny Ramon, Seth Simon Willison, Paul Bigar, Patrick McKenzie, I can say these names and I don't have to introduce them, right? They're thought leader types. All of them were positive. <laughs> and then the people I would have to introduce, or I don't even know their bio, they were saying things like, you can pry local host when I cold dead hands. This is the final step in the road to the inescapable surveillance dystopia. General purpose computation on your own machine is probably going to be illegal in 20 years. It will be our greatest accomplishment if we can liberate even 1% of humanity from this soul-stifling metaverse. So really cutting, really brutal. But even that last comment was agreeing, saying this will probably be inevitable. We just don't like it. And I think there's two questions. One is, should you like it? And two is, is it inevitable whether or not you like it? So I think there are two levels to debate. Maybe the second level is just, is who knows? Who knows if it's actually inevitable? Only history can tell. All we're doing here is we're observing some trends. Everything is trending in one direction. Maybe it'll continue, maybe not, right? Should we like it? That is the bigger question. And I think it's reasonable to want more control. It's always reasonable to want privacy. And I think that's why this tweet or this post did well on Hacker News in terms of upvotes, but the comments just tore it to shreds. Brutal. Yeah, yeah. Because Hacker News, out of all the communities, loves privacy, loves open source, hates proprietary services, right? So I think that is entirely reasonable. And then the other thing to point out is if you are a thought leader type, you probably work for a large vendor or you are a founder, right? So you're trying to provide proprietary services. And so you have a vested interest in encouraging people that, hey, the cloud will not harm you or the cloud is a TCO win or whatever the choice of terminology you favor. It's really up to you what your value system is. I think that my North Star is, am I more productive and how much time am I spending on things I don't really want to spend time on? I just, it's just incidental complexity. And what kind of apps do I want to develop? And my universe of apps is increasingly more infrastructure-centric, more data-driven than other types of apps. If you're just a front-end dev, you take Markdown, you transform into HTML, and that's about it. Then yeah, go ahead, be my guest. You can do everything localhost. Go code on your planes. Go code in your mountain cabins. I don't care. But if you use any sort of significant cloud services, you will not be able to mock some percentage of them. And even if you deploy a significant cluster of services, you can't run that on your local machine. And so there's just a lot of reasons where you just start running into issues with development. And I think for the vast majority of people trying to make money doing big things with technology, that's what they will be concerned about. So I'm focused there. So we're getting to the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask if there's anything else we haven't covered that you really want to point listeners to and focus on in the blog post. There is one more nuance between the inner loop and outer loop where the cloud has basically already eaten the dev outer loop, right? So now we're just talking about whether the cloud is eating the dev inner loop. So I encourage you to read more on the blog post there.
So it's the in and out of dev loop is like super interesting. And probably that's a whole podcast we can do in the future. So yeah, that, because I mean, I've done a lot of thinking in that space as well. That's been a fantastic tour de force of the potential end of localhost, right? Fantastic. If folks want to find out more, where's the best way to engage with you, Swix? Like on Twitter, LinkedIn, via DX Tips site? Let the folks know. I actually intentionally don't have a LinkedIn. This has been a sticking point for recruiters because they're like, we need to hire people onto your team and people want to look you up. So I said, basically, try not to do CRUD data entry for a $26 billion company that turns around and sells your information. Literally, that's all they do. You hate Google and Facebook doing that. So why are you doing it for free on LinkedIn? Anyway, so you can reach out to me on Twitter or DXTips. DXTips is the new dedicated blog that I spun out for my writing. I'm hoping for it to be maybe a baby info queue. Ah, interesting. <laughs> interesting competition. I don't have an ambition. I needed to split out my personal reflections from my professional reflections. And I thought that there was enough of an audience that I could do a dedicated one. I was more inspired by CSS tricks. So yeah, sorry to cut a long story short. You can reach out to me there. This has been awesome. It's been a great chat we've got in the can here. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure. Hey, it's me again. So if you want to see more, um, check the show notes. I've included the link to the full blog post and then the talk that I did related to the end of Localhost. All right. Have a good weekend.